1: Chase Mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JP Morgan, Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC.
2: pushkin this is talk easy i'm sam fragoso welcome to the show Today, we return to our conversation with artist and musician, David Byrne. For the better part of a decade, Byrne was, of course, the front man of Talking Heads, a ragtag collection of former art school students that found each other in the New York punk scene of the 1970s. Together, they would become pioneers of the new wave movement, producing hit songs like Burning Down the House, Road to Nowhere, Once in a Lifetime, and This Must Be the Place. But, At the height of the band's success, something remarkable happened in December of 1983. For three nights at the Pantages Theater in Los Angeles, the group performed a kind of retrospective of their work, and all of it, lucky for us, was captured on film. The result was Stop Making Sense, directed by the late, great Jonathan Demme. And to celebrate the film's 40th anniversary, The good people at A24 have recently restored it in 4K and are putting it back in theaters starting this week. If you haven't seen it in a bit or just want to hear some talking heads, here's a clip from the trailer. That was from the film Stop Making Sense. It's currently available in IMAX for one week before expanding the theaters across the country on September 29th. If you'd like to check out the new 4K restoration, which is really just so stunning, you can get tickets at stopmakingsense.movie. That's stopmakingsense.movie. You can also find that link in the description of this episode wherever you are listening right now. As for today... I sat with David in New York City last March around the tail end of his Broadway production of American Utopia. We talk a whole lot about that show at the beginning and end of this episode, but we also talk about his gift for collaboration, how he's moved so seamlessly out of mediums and genres throughout his career, and of course, his complicated relationship with the talking heads. That's all coming up next with the one and only... David Byrne. Stay with us.
3: BP
0: added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, And starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing
1: in America. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to the Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com/business/podcast. Chase make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member FDIC. Copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan Chase and Co.
3: 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
2: David Byrne. Hi, hi. Pleasure to meet you. Thank you, thank you. We're sitting in New York, and I was thinking about how I hadn't done one of these in person in a little bit now. It's a strange sensation sitting with a stranger you and I have never met before. How do you feel about it, sitting across from a stranger on microphones? Well, I've kind
4: of had my fill of Zooms. <laughs> I think in-person meetings and discussions are just a lot more fruitful. We read other people in lots of different ways that aren't communicated by phones or
2: texts or Zooms. So a lot more gets done. I had a similar sensation that I'm having now this past week when I went to see your show on Broadway, American Utopia. I was in a room full of strangers. And I wanted to start here because in the opening of your show, you mentioned first performing Utopia in 2019. In the intervening years, you said, How I see the world has changed. And I figure we just begin in the present. What are you thinking about when you say that? What has shifted for you since March of 2020?
4: Uh, I don't think I'm unique, but I think we've all become aware of how connected we are within, wow, really just months. It decimates the whole globe and it spreads everywhere. And we're not out of it quite yet in this whatever globalized world, we can't say, oh, we'll just keep this isolated. So, yeah, that changed. I saw, I've seen simultaneously during the pandemic, the rise of kind of a lot of civic awareness, people marching and talking about kind of social justice issues that were always there, but people became more vocal and vocal about it. And then at the same time, this counter trend of misinformation and just complete falsehoods and lying and all this kind of stuff, completely what would be called antisocial behavior, I guess, as if I can have my own truth. It doesn't have to do with anything that relates to reality. Whatever I say is true is true. It's like individualism cranked up to some incredible extreme.
2: Those are the global changes that I think you and I have both seen. I think other people have seen those as well. When you said that on stage, it did feel like you were also talking about some things that have shifted inside of you. Yes, like a lot of other New Yorkers. By the way, it's perfect. As you're talking about New Yorkers, we hear a siren in the background. Yes, we are in New York. (laughs) (laughs) They
4: won't let us forget it. As with a lot of other New Yorkers, yes, we kind of were in lockdown for a long time, varying levels of lockdown. But so a lot of us spent a lot of time alone whether it was doing Zoom calls or watching streaming movies, but just being by yourself. I think I was pretty much okay with that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I wouldn't want to go on forever. I did miss seeing people. But I'm a person who is kind of okay just being by myself sometimes. I don't mind going out to a restaurant by myself, sitting at a counter and reading a book. I don't mind that. I don't feel like, oh, poor lonely guy doesn't have anybody to go out with. I feel like, no, this is what I feel like doing tonight. (laughs) So that part didn't make me kind of lose my mind. But I think for some people who really rely on their sense of self being affirmed or denied or whatever by other people, that kind of isolation was really hard on a lot of people.
2: Are you someone that's particularly creative in that isolation? I know you had some trouble writing songs, which is where this Book comes in a history of the world in dingbats.
4: I tried to write some songs during the kind of the depths of the pandemic. I wrote one that was kind of funny about being attracted to someone, but all you could see was their eyes, and you couldn't get any closer than six feet. <laughs> but I thought you can try and find humor in this, but for a lot of people, this is very serious. They don't have work. People are getting sick and dying. It's not a joke. I kind of put that aside and said, let's see what happens. And what happened was I started drawing on a lot of my feelings about the pandemic and the lockdown and everything came out that way. That wasn't intentional. But after I'd done a kind of a pile of them, I looked at it and thought, oh, I see what's going on here. I'm starting to work on songs now. At that point, I couldn't figure out. I was too close to it. I couldn't figure out how to respond to this.
2: You started performing your show before the pandemic in 2019. It was initially just a record, which was released in 2018, and it seemed to be in response to the Trump presidency. Here's a quote from you. The way Trump says, let's make America great again, imagining some more perfect, ideal version of America in the past. I think many of us imagine there's an ideal version of what a country could be or what life could be that exists maybe not in a concrete future, but in a conceptual future of some sort. Now that we're in 2022, living in a different version of America, at least to some degree, where are you placing the show these days? The kind of the bones of the show
4: started coming together even before Trump was elected president, Uh, although it might seem that way. It was not really a response to him being president, although that's when a lot of the show got put up and started running. And that's certainly when it ended up on Broadway. Then it seemed like all the issues that we bring up in the show seemed to be things that were very kind of of the moment. But they've been kind of brewing for a while before that. When we returned to Broadway in 2021, the show had a slightly different feel. How so? It felt a little bit more celebratory in the last year or so. Whereas when we were doing it in 2019, it felt like it was a response to the kind of the anxiety, I think, that a lot of us had, were feeling about the state of the world, the state of the country, our own state of mind. So it was cathartic in that way. But now it seemed like the audience being together, they felt like we're kind of getting through this. And so there was a, a feeling of uh, a celebrating being together, a crowd of people being together, which
2: hadn't happened in a long time, all those kinds of things. That mission statement in which people being together just side-by-side, actually feels hopeful. Mm. There's something in that about longing for something better. I think that's a through line throughout the show. And it seems like it's in part informed by the William Blake poem called Jerusalem. It would later be turned into an English hymn, but it was first published in Preface to Milton, a poem from 1810. Would you mind reading it for us? Do you have it there?
4: You, and of course you do. And did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountains green? And was the Holy Lamb of God on England's pleasant pastures seen? And did the countenance divine shine forth upon our clouded hills? And was Jerusalem builded there amongst these dark satanic mills? Bring me my bow of burning gold. Bring me my arrows of desire. Bring me my spear, O clouds, unfold bring me my chariot of fire. I will not cease from mental fight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. And that's a poem of longing too, longing and hope, a world that might be longed for that can be approached.
2: When you're reading that and thinking about it in relation to American Utopia, what do you think that world looks like?
4: Wow, what does it look like? Rather than kind of coming up with a big utopian manifesto, I tend to go for little things, little by little. I have an online news magazine called Reasons to be Cheerful. And the other day, uh, working on an article about places that are turning back gerrymandering, and a group of people in Michigan managed to do that. The first step was to get a lot of signatures, get an initiative added to the ballot so people could have an amendment that would allow for redistricting to happen without the involvement of politicians. And they did it. So things like that, you imagine, okay, if they can do it, what if some other states can do it? until basically you would like to say, what if the whole country could do that? Piece by piece. Piece by piece. Because it seems like, well, maybe that's the way it happens. One place has to show that it can be done and then other places go, oh, that's not just a dream and it's not just a, you know, something you imagined. It could actually be achieved. And how did you do that? And maybe we can do that. I get a little bit of hope from seeing that happening here and there in different things. That happens to be one that I'm thinking about at the moment, but there's resistance to it. It's not easy. The people who did that faced legal challenges and people tried to kind of stop them or thwart them or turn them back, but they managed to do it.
2: A couple of weeks back, I sat with Stacey Abrams, who of course upended the electorate in Georgia. Her key thesis is that she meets people where they are. And I wondered about this in relation to your work. You've collaborated with so many people, but in this show, you're collaborating with a bunch of people. Do you feel like part of your work is to meet people where they are?
4: Well, when you say where they are, I think of that metaphorically,
2: that where they are meaning like what they're thinking, what they're feeling. You know, actually, David, I like to imagine you just riding your bicycle to each of your bandmates' homes. Well, I almost do that.
4: During the depths of the pandemic here, bandmates and I and sometimes other friends would go for a lot of bike rides and we'd ride all over the place. It was a way of being together with other people, but you were being socially distant. And we took it as an opportunity to explore different neighborhoods of our city that we hadn't
2: seen before. But spiritually and metaphorically, that idea of meeting your bandmates where they are, is that something you kind of have to do to all work in harmony?
4: Over the years, I think I've learned a little bit how to empathize with what other people might be going through, my collaborators, bandmates, whatever, trying to see things from their point of view. And sometimes that works. Rather than being confrontational, you can kind of find a place where... What is it that you want? What is it that I want? What is it that we share together there?
2: Do you consider yourself a confrontational band leader?
4: Not anymore. I used to be. In a past life. Yeah, in a past life, I think I used to be more adamant about my way or the highway, or I'm going to say how everything has to go. And now I realized that not only is that somewhat unpleasant sometimes, but you can sometimes get a better result by including other people in the process. And if they understand, if you can communicate what it is you're trying to do, they might come up with solutions and ideas that are better than what you yourself would have thought of.
2: When did that turn happen for you?
4: Not at once, little by little, over like 20, 30 years, kind of a slow process.
2: Mm-hmm. Can we talk about the process of actually putting this show together? Because on stage, you have a group of, untethered musicians. No mic stands, no platforms, no drums. What spoke to you in creating this kind of environment? Again, it was
4: very incremental. I had done shows before. I did a tour with St. Vincent where we had a brass section that was completely mobile, which didn't seem that odd because brass sections can be they're, They hold their instruments, and we just thought, okay, we put radio mics on them, so they were kind of choreographed. And I wondered, wow, I, I, this kind of—you're half awake—and I imagined, what if everyone was untethered like that? What if all the drums were taken apart, and you had like a, a drum line or a somber school or second line, that kind of vibe, and they're all kind of moving as they're playing. And I thought, that's a really amazing feeling. I witnessed that in those contexts, but what if I could bring that to the stage? And so I thought, okay, let's see what is technically possible and what's financially possible. I had to see like, okay, how many extra musicians am I going to need to do that? Can I afford that? What do I stand to earn from a tour and what will that pay for all this? One thing leads to another and you go, okay, we can do that. Now, that means we can have, the stage can be empty. But in order to see emptiness, you have to kind of sort of draw a line around it. Like the empty space on this desk doesn't look that impressive. But if you kind of drew a line around it and said, that place is empty, then it becomes a thing. So I've worked with some technical people and production people. And we arrived at the idea of having a, a curtain kind of made of a lightweight chain. It's just about problem solving we were thinking for a while about having fabric like curtains and things like that which might seem natural but then we were also slated to play outdoor festivals and things and the wind would have turned those into sails and we would have had to take them all down
2: though i do kind of comedically like the image of you performing and it just being spread apart Oh, you mean that there's nothing. Yeah, and then you then you have bandmates trying to hold it down together and the yeah. fabric's all over the place. <laughs> it it could be an experimental art piece. Yes, it could be. It could be, but... Um, it has nothing to do with music. It could be very, very dangerous,
4: too, uh, because it's attached to a kind of metal truss. So we got got that figured out. We figured we could put the lighting in the same thing that holds the chain so we didn't have to have visible lighting things. And that was it. Those things started to be worked out about a year before we actually went on tour and started performing. It was a long,
2: long process. Of all the songs that you play in this show, is there one that you think best displays the talents of the band playing in harmony without any sort of amps, frills, et cetera? There's one called
4: Glass, Concrete, and Stone where a lot of the band members play their
2: instruments by putting
4: their hands and arms through the chain and holding their instrument on the other side so that you don't see them. All you see is their instrument and their hands and arms,
2: which is kind of like, well, we can actually do that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the fact that you did do that is kind of remarkable to me. So why don't we take a listen to that song? This is Glass, Concrete and Stone from the show American Utopia. That was remarkable to see that in person.
4: Yes, that they're actually able to play that way.
2: <laughs> I saw that and I thought, I don't know if I'm ever going to be this talented at anything. In my life. <laughs> wow, there's a number of things where people, yeah, moving around all over the place. Coming back, in American Utopia, we open on you alone, sitting at a desk, holding a brain. You slowly then reveal this band all around you. This slow reveal of your collaborators, did you first conceive of that idea during your tour of the solo record Ray Momo in 1989?
4: Yeah, and I'd done it before. I like show that was filmed for Stop Making Sense. I started off with just me and an acoustic guitar, and then the others come out little by little. I love the idea of introducing the elements. Piece by piece. Piece by piece that are gonna make up the show, and that the audience gets to see little by little what the elements are and how they how they fit together and the audience can is kind of witness to that so rather than kind of slamming everything out there right away to the audience kind of introducing it little by little and that let them kind of let the audience kind of figure out okay i get this now we got this added to that and now this and this and this and that. and so they're kind of putting it together in their heads as they see this happening
2: in your book how music works around that show i mentioned around that tour I bucked the tide on that tour. We did mostly new material rather than interspersing it with a lot of popular favorites, and I think I paid the price. While the shows were exciting and even North Americans danced to our music, much of my audience soon abandoned me, assuming I'd gone native. Another lesson learned from performing live. At one point, we got booked at a European outdoor music festival, and my Latin band was sandwiched between Pearl Jam and Soundgarden. Great bands, but I couldn't have felt more out of place.
4: Yeah, that was uh, the Ray Momo tour. <laughs> what are you laughing at? My kind of single-mindedness and wanted to do that. I had a wonderful, wonderful time. It did probably, as I wrote there, it did probably alienate some of the kind of core Talking Heads fans who stuck with me for a while, but then when they saw me come out with a full Latin band, it was like, no this is not exactly what we signed up for. But to my surprise, the audiences in Latin America really liked it. I thought, okay, well, this is going to be a real baptism. They're either going to think I'm a complete phony or that I'm appropriating their music. But the record was also made with Latin musicians. Yes, it was made with Latin musicians here in New York, mostly. And New York is a place where a lot of this music emerged. A lot of it. There were hybrids of Puerto Rican and Cuban and African and Brazilian music all kind of emerging out of New York over decades. So it, was hard, it wasn't like I was kind of appropriating roots music from different places. This was all New York stuff. This was all stuff that was happening in New York clubs. But for a lot of the audiences in Latin America, my demographic was still kind of the alternative rock crowd, let's say. But they grew up with this music, too, and their parents did. So it was almost like this outsider saying, you know, this stuff that you grew up with is pretty great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you don't have to abandon it.
2: Well, let's not abandon it here on this show and take a listen to the song Women Versus Men from the 1989 record Ray Momo. He
5: said, let's make a deal It's not the law
3: It's a treacherous act
2: That line you have at the top, I bucked the tide on that tour. Have you grown more comfortable with bucking the tide the more you do this?
4: I don't know if I've grown more comfortable bucking the tide, but I've become more aware of when you make a decision to do that, that it's gonna
2: cost you. That's what you were laughing about earlier.
4: Yeah, that it's gonna cost you, so you should need to be aware of that. Maybe it won't, but there's a good chance that it will. And so, factor that in. Be ready for that.
2: What do you mean by cost you?
4: Well, it might cost you an audience. It might cost you monetarily. You might find that you have to play in smaller places because fewer people are interested in this new thing that you're trying out. That could happen. So, you have to kind of figure out, okay, can I afford to do this?
2: Are those concerns you have? Oh, yeah. I mean,
4: I live in the real world. I'm not going <laughs> to... I ask for a budget to be done on my tours and stuff, and I want to know, okay, it's not all about money, but I don't want to go home in debt, especially performing, doing a, a concert tour or something like that. Doing, a say, a book or a record, like a, a records these days, you don't make as much money as maybe you used to, so it's not like, okay, I can do a record and then don't have to support it with a tour or don't have to tour. The, now it's kind of the touring is where a lot of your income comes from. With a book, yes, I mean, you could write something, as I have done from time to time, I could do something fairly arty, and, but I know that that's gonna be a limited, have a limited audience,
2: and that's okay. If it's, I'm not disappointed. In thinking about the multiculturalism of your work, we were talking about you going to Latin America and conceiving that record with Latin artists. A lot of American Utopia is performed, as you say in the show, by immigrants. You said, if you want to talk about immigration, just look on the stage. If immigration was stopped, we wouldn't be here.
4: Yes, we wouldn't have a show. A lot of these incredibly talented people came from other places, not just to do this show, or a little fluid for musicians.
2: They move around. I mention all these people, whether it's the Latin artists you worked with on that record, the immigrants that occupied the stage of American Utopia. You mentioned Annie of St. Vincent. I mention them because so much of your work stems from these feelings of alienation. Early in American Utopia, you say, Meeting people is hard. Should I go over there and talk to that person? Hell no! And I realize I'm quoting this back to you as you've just met me, but I think one of your great gifts is this ability to collaborate with all those people I just mentioned. Whether it's on a song, an exhibit an installation, a book, a Broadway show, whatever it is. And it made me wonder, is making art with people the easiest way for you to connect with people?
4: Yes, it's a lot easier than having a social conversation
2: or just going up to a
4: stranger at a dinner or a party or something like that, and trying to chat somebody up. I'm a lot more socially comfortable than I used to be. In, in the show, I'm kind of referring to my older self, where. I found that profoundly difficult. And I'm not alone there, I realize that. But musical collaboration, you can kind of get outside yourself and and do that. And it's kind of like, okay, that works, that works, we can do that. And being in a band, performing, all those things, you have to collaborate and work together socially and artistically. And that's maybe a pathway, I realized in retrospect. Oh, this is a pathway for me to kind of gradually, step by step, navigate kind of social relationships.
2: What does that mean when making music, you're stepping outside of yourself?
4: When you're making music, the decisions you're making with the other people are ideally about what's best for the song, what's best for that piece of music. I mean, it's not about me personally. They're about the song has a entity, or it's a life of its own. Uh, the music has that. And you go, okay, the idea is to make that work. It's not to just prop me up.
2: In a way, it almost sounds selfless.
4: Well, to some extent, but we get plenty of rewards. (laughs) I think a lot of artists experience this too. People enjoy the music. They feel like they know me and they feel like I'm somehow 100% responsible for it. And I feel like, no, I, I, I worked on it. This is part of my job. I work on it and I honor the music and honor the writing and whatever it happens to be. But I feel like I, as a person, I'm not 100% responsible. So there's some disassociation there. To some extent. Do you think people know you? Do you believe that? I have some friends who I think know me. I think pretty well. But strangers, probably not. But you think they think they know you. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know that. I mean, people think that about actors. They've seen an actor in something and they really identify with the part that they play. And they feel like
2: they know them. That's their job. I ask that because I wonder, do you ever feel that about people you meet or or, or, or artists you you admire? I'm
4: as guilty as that as anyone. There are artists whom I admire, whether it's, uh, you know, movie directors or songwriters and performers and, you know, all sorts. And you go, you you feel like, oh, that person is expressing the same stuff that I feel. I get what they're doing. I get what they're saying here. (laughs) But, you know, that's just a feeling. What were you laughing at? I'm laughing at
2: um, how I'm as guilty of it as anyone else. In my head, you were laughing at some past experience where you uh, went up to someone thinking you knew them only through their work.
4: Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. I I mean, (laughs) I've been a fanboy once or twice, too. I was at an event not too long ago, and across the room I saw Henry Louis Gates the historian and he has these documentaries and everything and I'd like over the pandemic I'd watched everything he'd done every documentary every episode and so I thought oh I'm such a fan I'm going to go introduce myself and of course I did and then I realized I have nothing to say (laughs) all I could say is I'm such a fan so I felt kind of stupid but I thought okay that is what you wanted to do and now I realize that's
2: what people sometimes do
4: to me (laughs)
2: He didn't say like, oh, well, I'm actually a big fan of Remain in the Light.
4: No, he didn't. No, he didn't. (laughs) For him, it was a little bit of a, it was not unpleasant, but maybe an interruption.
2: I'm sure he was pleasantly surprised. We'll be right back with David Byrne.
5: Message and data rates may apply. JPMorgan Chase, N.A. Member, FDIC, 2024, JPMorgan Chase & Co. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal
3: unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern. Only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
2: You mentioned in your book, How Music Works, that later on in life, you diagnosed yourself with some mild dose of Asperger's syndrome. And I'm curious, this neurodivergence, which is kind of the term most people use now, do you think in some ways it propelled you onto the stage? Oh, absolutely. Which I think for some people, maybe you can explain, that doesn't totally make sense, those two things. Yes, I could see where where people would go. Wait a minute, you're uncomfortable in social
4: situations, yet you wanna jump up on stage? Somehow, being on stage and performing or whatever, it didn't feel like it was myself. I mean, I realized it is myself, but I felt like it's an artificial situation. You have the framework or structure of a song or a little speech you're doing or whatever you're doing, and you're not really in a dialogue with with people. I realized, in retrospect, oh, this becomes a kind of outlet. You might find it difficult to kind of socially interact with people, but being on stage, it gives you an opportunity to say, here I am. I exist. I can express myself in front of you. And then you can retreat back into your shell if you want. Gradually, over the years, that kind of changes, and you become more socially adept. Now, I think I'm fairly comfortable. But in retrospect, I had a friend who pointed it out at some point when the whole idea of the Asperger Spectrum was kind of gaining currency. And she said, David, look at this. Is this you? <laughs> and how did that interaction go? Well, that's kind of was. David,
2: is this you? She was reading something?
4: Yeah, but she was looking at something about the spectrum and and I said, "Yeah, I recognize a lot of that."
2: Was that the first time you did recognize some of that?
4: It's the first time maybe I thought I realized that there was a name for it and that it was not uncommon. Maybe like all of us, I didn't see this as a disability. I didn't see it as a superpower either at the time. It just seemed like this is the way I am. I'm maybe not exactly the same as everybody else. You didn't see yourself as deficient. No, I didn't see myself as deficient. I just thought, okay, I'm a little bit different. And maybe we're all a little bit different from one another. When my friend pointed that out, I realized, oh,
2: there's a name for this. When you did receive a name for it, did it at all change how you saw yourself?
4: No, little by little, I think I was realizing that a lot of what I was doing in my life was either compensating for that, using that to my advantage, or finding ways to interact with people that I felt comfortable with. I started working with a band of four people, and then gradually that expanded to nine people, and and even larger bands. And Dealing with other people and having to work with them professionally, you realize it's joyous. Once you get on stage and you start playing, it's this joyous experience. It's really cathartic. And you start to emerge little by little.
2: You said there were things that you would do to compensate. What did that look like?
4: I would feel, again, comfortable working on my own and still can sometimes. Find it very easy to focus on, on something. Kind of exclude the rest of the world. That's pretty useful when you're doing what I do. I would say so. I do remember, as I say in the show, trying to figure people out. I didn't couldn't read people automatically or naturally or instinctively. <laughs> I would sometimes take things people said very literally. <laughs> Is it an example here? Yes, I remember sometimes being admonished and told, David, that was not meant exactly literally. And gradually learning that sometimes when people say one thing, they assume that you can interpret that when like they say, Maybe, maybe da, 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 in a certain way, that actually means no. They assume that you know that that means no. You can read between the lines. Yes, that you can read between the lines in the way they said something or the way their their body language or whatever. And sometimes if you don't, if you're not able to do that, you're kind of left like, hmm, that's not a very clear answer.
2: So you would take things incredibly literally?
4: Not all the time, but sometimes, yes.
2: Have you been trying to figure me out during this conversation?
4: Oh, probably. I assume that, uh, you know, that that's what we do as people. We constantly on one level we're having a conversation but on another level we're going what's this person about where did they
2: how do they do this their work is to talk to
4: people yeah
2: i mean i think what you're saying is true two people sit down they're strangers of course we're looking at each other thinking who the hell is this person what are they all about Mm. which of course i've been trying to figure out during this conversation oh okay (laughs) you know this literalism that you're talking about, are not always being able to read between the lines. You mentioned earlier this band that you were in called The Talking Heads. In the middle of this conversation, you said that a younger version of yourself was maybe more difficult to work with because of that single-mindedness.
4: So that, that's a good example of the single-mindedness is a good thing because it allows you to focus on something and really try and kind of get it to work and figure out how to do it and to the exclusion of all the other distractions around you. But then as far as dealing with other people, that can be kind of obnoxious. And I realized that, yeah, that I've, there've been times when I've been obnoxious. Hopefully those times are fewer than they were in the past. So, I mean, you could say, well, I was a young, younger person. I was unsure of myself. And so I would kind of lash out or act a certain way because of kind of my insecurities or whatever, which we've all seen people do that. Uh, well, we all go through a period when we're younger, sometimes pretending we're more confident than we are. But that's, that sort of gets us through stuff.
2: Fake it till you make it kind of thing. It's a little bit, yeah. There are many people listening that are going to wonder, Sam, you sat with the very talented David Byrne, and you two really didn't talk about this great band that you were in, this, oh. this this great music. And I want to be clear, it's not because I didn't grow up with your music, it's not because I don't love the work you've made, but it seems to me that it's a chapter of your life that you don't particularly like to talk about.
4: It's not that I don't like to talk about it. I'm proud of what we did, and I like a lot of the work we did. I don't like to dwell on it. That's the, that's the thing. I don't I like to dwell on it. As like, well, that's the only thing you did and everything you've done since then is kind of inconsequential. That is mind-boggling. I don't know anyone who feels that way. Well, that's nice to hear. There's probably a generation that kind of grew up with that music, the talking head stuff. And as with any music that you grew up with, that music had a big impact for people at a certain moment in their life and nothing you can ever do after that will ever equal that for its impact to them because it was a particular moment in their life. So it's not about you or your work, it's about how it affected them at their life, which is a great thing and I'm grateful for it, but I also feel like part of it is that, yeah, I just don't want to live in
2: the past. Well, let's stick with the present because I wasn't alive when those records were made. Mm -hmm. That has no bearing on my enjoyment, I still, you know, was in a college dorm listening to Uh to the things you made. And I want to go back to your performance this past week when you and the band start playing Once in a Lifetime. In the front row, there's a little girl with her family. She couldn't have been older than four, five. Mm -hmm. And in the front row, as the song begins to play, she was previously sitting on her mother's lap quietly the whole show the song happens and she erupts Mm-mm. this little girl who has no idea who the hell the talking heads are
4: no she must i remember that she must have been maybe 6
2: and yet she had this inherent response mm. and i wondered what seeing something like that does to you and your spirit it was
4: really nice to see yeah and you feel like oh the appeal of this stuff kind of lives on and it's n- and not just geared to a particular generation, which is really nice to see. (laughs) Yes, and it's really great to see her. This little girl was really engaged with the show throughout, and sometimes she would erupt in dancing, but other times she was just like watching everything, which is great. There are times, though, when people bring their kids, and you can sense like Uh -uh. the father or someone going, son, I want you to come and see this band that means a lot to me, or this artist that means a lot to me, and the kid is just like, oh, for God's sake, do I have to? Yes, you do. And the kid is just like, not having it. I do not want my parents telling me what I'm supposed to like. I'm I witnessed that too. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I like the image of a disgruntled 14-year-old boy. Oh yeah, unimpressed. Yes, unimpressed. I'm, I'm I'm not going to be impressed.
4: No matter how much I like it, I'm not going to show that I'm impressed. <laughs> it's a little bit of that going on.
2: There's clearly a change that's happened in you between that younger Talking Heads, Frontman, Self, and David Burnett, 64, 65. When you sat down with Spike Lee in 2020, and Spike, for reference, directed the film version of American Utopia, you said, there's a character. I mean, it's me, but it's also a character who goes on a journey and ends up in a very different place from where he was in the beginning. It's kind of living inside his head, this American Utopia. And by the end, he's engaging with the whole world. Yeah, I mean, I
4: had to, at some point, look at the show and realize, what's this show about? I hope that it's not just about me, that I'm kind of the vehicle where people can see that in themselves as well. We all go through that journey in our own way. Me in my way, which thankfully gets a laugh every once in a while. But uh, that everybody can identify with a lot of it. What do you think it's about
2: in 2022?
4: It's, yeah, as some writers have recently said, it's kind of about connecting with people and learning how to do that little by little and then kind of actually acting, being more engaged.
2: That transformation I mentioned in that quote, it's kind of living inside his head. And by the end, he's engaging with the world. There's a clear transformation that happens, both in the character that you play, but also in you now. And it made me think of, the song everybody's coming to my house which in your version is a song about friends coming over and i'm never going to be alone Mm -hmm. but in 2018 the detroit school of arts played this song in their way and i wondered if we could first just listen to your version of this track and then hear how these kids in detroit played it sure sure okay This is Everybody's Coming to My House by David Byrne. So that was your version of the song, Everybody's Coming to My House. Now, why don't we take a listen to the kids from the Detroit School of Arts.
4: they did such a great job yeah they really transformed the song it's extraordinary to hear kind of the words that i'm used to singing but when they sing it it seems to have a different meaning their version to be about welcoming everybody over to their house instead of being having some anxieties about it and it makes me wonder how much does the song belong to the person who interprets it as opposed to the writer
2: that's kind of remarkable yeah, that that can happen. That that can happen. Yeah. To have such a clear example of that. hmm
4: I mean, there's probably plenty of songs where it has one meaning and it, you're never going to bend it into anything else. But there's, a lot, there's probably a lot of songs where you can think, oh, given a indif- different interpretation, you could really find a different meaning in that song. It feels like the work is not limited in what it means or how it can be interpreted. It can have a life that goes on beyond you and your interpretation.
2: My last question for you. In 1965, on your transistor radio, tucked away under your pillow, a song emerges. A song that told you, a kid from the suburbs, that there's another world out there. There's things being made for us. And that you had to go and find it. That song was Mr. Tambourine Man by The Birds. When you sit with that image, a young teenage David Byrne, thinking I have to go out into the world and and find something. Do you think you found it?
4: To some extent, yes, I think so. I found that there are all these communities of musicians and artists and filmmakers and all these people doing things, people living lives that are different than what I might have thought was possible growing up in the suburbs. And I'm certainly not alone in that, thinking, well, I have to go and find out where this is coming there's another world out there the song is like a whatever a little paper airplane message or message in a bottle that was sent out to people like myself and calling us and telling us you have to connect with the the world that's making this that we're doing things that will have meaning for you
2: and so you did david byrne thank you for the time thank you for the music thank you for this conversation
4: thank you thank you it's been great to be here
2: our show. If you enjoyed that talk with David, be sure to leave us five stars on Spotify, Apple, wherever you do your listening. If you want to go above and beyond, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, share the show on social media, share it with a friend. Really, all of it helps new listeners find the show. I want to give a special thanks to the teams at Grandstand Media, Todo Mundo, A24, and of course, our guest, David Byrne. If you want to check out that new restoration of Stop Making Sense, you can find it exclusively in IMAX throughout the week. The film will also expand to theaters across the country starting September 29th. To get tickets, visit stopmakingsense.movie. That's stopmakingsense.movie. You can also find a link to showtimes and venues on our website at talkeasypod.com. For more conversations like this one, I'd recommend S.D. Haim, Deb Hines, Lord, Ludwig Gorenson, Questlove, Leve, and Arlo Parks. You can find all those and more on our website or wherever you are listening to this right now. To hear more Pushkin podcasts, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to purchase one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy. Or our vinyl record with Fran Lebowitz, you can do so at talkeasypod.com/shop. As always, Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is and Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Our assistant editors are Clarice Guevara, C.J. Mitchell, and Lindsay Ellis. Our illustrations are by Krisha Shenoy. Our music is by Dylan Peck. Photographs today are by Emma Mead. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gabrizak, Ian Jones, and Ethan Seneca. I also want to thank our team at Pushkin Industries. Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Eric Sandler, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Narvaez, Kira Posey, Tara Machado, Maya Koenig, Jason Gambrell, Justine Lang, Tal Malad, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week with writer Zadie Smith. Until then, stay safe, and so long.